everyone remain calm. Back for more, huh? Well, yeah, ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and then screaming. Somebody talk to me, what is happening? Welcome to Jurassic World. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Jurassic Park Podcast. How long is it going to take for that to spread around the globe? This was all John Hammond's dream. Hold on to your butt. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 335th episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss all things Jurassic Park. In this episode, we're going to kick things off with some Jurassic World Dominion news. It's still going. You'd think at this point there really wouldn't be much else to discuss for Dominion news-wise, but here we are. We've got some more things to discuss. And then after that, we're going to hear from Connor O'Keefe in the segment Dino DNA with his guest, Natalia Jagielska, to discuss something a little bit different than strictly Dino DNA. They're going to discuss pterosaurs, so I'm very excited to get into that discussion about the Jurassic flying animals very shortly. But first, of course, we have to take care of some quick business. So last week, over on our website, JurassicParkPodcast.com, Tom Jurassic was kind enough to put together an article on Jurassic World The Exhibition opening up in London. And uh, they were able to invite a lot of really, really cool Jurassic fans out there. This week's contributor, Connor, was there as well, so please check that out. But uh, the exhibition finally opened up in London, and they all had a chance to preview this, I think, at a preview night. So definitely check out the article, see what Tom had to say about it. Check out his awesome pictures and everything in there. It's just, the exhibition is awesome. And uh, I'm so glad Tom had the chance to uh, take a look and uh, preview it for everybody here on our website. Now, over on our YouTube, over the past two weeks, we've uploaded a a few videos. Uh, I uploaded the Outhouse Chaos playset review, where I took a look at the Donald Gennaro uh, Outhouse playset with the, uh, what is it, Hammond Collection T-Rex and and Gennaro. It's a really, really fun set, so please check out that video where I got to unbox it and review it. Shout out to my buddy Phil for sending that my way. I also did two merchandise hunts from Target, so please check out those merch hunts. And I did a live stream two weeks ago showcasing uh, a lot of fun news stories. Bryce seems to be passing the torch uh, to DeWanda Wise, so definitely check out that. Uh, We had Beyond the Gates. Uh, There was some talk about Jurassic NFTs. Yay. (laughs) Um, There was also uh, some talk about the extended cut and so much more, so definitely check that out. And our live streams are the best way to stay up to date on Jurassic News here from the Jurassic Park podcast. Now, last week I did not get a chance to do a live stream, but I will be back again this week doing live streams Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so please check us out Wednesday night. Who knows what we're going to be talking about? If you have any idea, uh, send some stuff my way. I'll start talking about it. I'm not sure. I've been away I don't know what's going on Jurassic-wise, <laughs> but uh, I'm definitely going to be there talking Jurassic with you all Wednesday night. We also do have a merch hunt that was uploaded uh, this week, showcasing my hunt over at Walmart, so please go check that one out. And we will certainly have many more videos to come over the next two weeks, because remember, we are a bi-weekly show, and you will get another show in two weeks. So enough of all that, why don't we go ahead and get this episode kicked off with a little bit of Jurassic news from around the world. 
18 minutes and your company catches up on 10 years of research. Access main program. Access main security. These pictures were taken in hospital in Costa Rica 48 hours ago. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but look. Boy, my head being right all the time. It's day. I guarantee it. All right, so first off here in the news, we have a little Jurassic World Dominion box office update for you all. Um, now, this is the theater box office. D despite the movie actually being available digitally, you can buy 4K, DVD, Blu-ray, I don't know, everything. You can, you can own this movie. You can do what you want with it. It sits here in my house. It's in my DVD player right now. Um, it is an amazing movie in, in the extended cut and, and all that stuff. But the theatrical version is still out there, still raining in some money, still pulling it in here in the box office. So they actually expanded the movie a little bit from the previous week. Uh, previous, the previous week, it actually had 742 theaters uh, around the country. And then they expanded it to 1521, so 1,521 theaters in, in the United States here, uh, which helped rake in a little bit more money than usual. So uh, this is pretty good. We're actually getting to a place where $1 billion is... It's like a 100% probability now at this point. Uh, you know, I was very skeptical very early on. I just wasn't sure that we would get there. Of course, the opening in Japan helped, um, but uh, and, and expanding the theaters here definitely helped, which is odd because, like I said, the DVD is out. But we are sitting at $990.4 million, so we are very, very close to $1 worldwide here. So we're, we're doing good. We're doing good. We just got a little bit more to go, and we'll have a $1 billion film here for Universal, for Jurassic. It's going to be great. And uh, you know what? I feel like this box office is making it very clear that uh, despite the, the taglines and everything saying that this is the epic conclusion, I think it's pretty clear that there is no way they are shutting it down just yet. I mean, look, we've got a $1 billion film on the horizon here and uh universal you ain't fooling anybody if you want to find out more about the box office head to the link in the show notes and lastly here in the news we just wanted to update you about uh jurassic world dominion showing up on peacock nbc universal streaming service uh, it looks like Jurassic World Dominion, the extended cut and theatrical cut, will both be joining Peacock on September 2nd. That is right around the corner. Uh, it looks like it's uh, showing up there a little bit earlier than projected. Uh, a lot of people were speculating that it wouldn't arrive on the service until sometime in October, but it looks like it's going to join up there a little bit sooner than we expected. So that's a great thing. And it also looks like Jurassic Park, The Lost World, and Jurassic Park 3 are also going to be joining the service on September 1st. Now, I know Peacock has been a little bit confusing for users, not really sure how to subscribe or do I need a free account? Is there a paid account? What do I need to do? Um, but you'll most likely need to subscribe uh, for a paid account in order to watch Jurassic World Dominion. Just a little bit of a heads up. Uh, it looks like you can subscribe at the lowest form for $4.99 a month. Uh, and I believe that is ad-based uh, subscription there. And then there is an ad-free version, which is $9.99 a month. If you want more information, head to the link in our show notes. Oh, oh there it is. There it is. Well, maybe dinosaurs have more in common with present-day birds than they do with reptiles.
You do understand these are actual animals, right? You read about them in books, you see the bones in museums, but you don't really believe it. You should hear a four-year-old try to say Archaeornithomimus. I read both of your books. You like dinosaurs back then. All vertebrate embryos are inherently female anyway. They just require an extra hormone given at the right developmental stage to make them male. You know that I'm not at liberty to reveal the asset's genetic makeup. Nothing in Jurassic World is natural. You will see a herd of the first dinosaurs on our tour, called Dilophosaurus. How would you classify it, Billy? Suchomimus snout. No, think bigger. Baryonyx. Spinosaurus aegypti. Actually, Charlie, those are herbivores. They really wouldn't be interested in fighting with each other. But these ones here are carnivores, and they really like fighting with each other. They use their teeth and their claws to rip each other's throats out. Al, he's three. Hello everybody, welcome back to Dino DNA with me, Connor, your host. In this show, we take a look at the real-world extinct animals that inspired the creatures we all know and love from the Jurassic film franchise. Today we're looking at a group of animals that aren't even dinosaurs at all, the flying reptiles, also known as pterosaurs. Today, I'm joined by paleontologist Natalia Jagielska. Thank you so much for joining me, Natalia. Hi, Connor. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. This is super exciting. Um, like, pterosaurs are such a weird group of animals and are so unlike anything we've got around on Earth today. So I'm really pleased to be joined by you in this uh, discussion. It is also very open for discussion of pterosaurs. There's so much infighting and drama within pterosaur research. <laughs> you won't understand. It looks like cool dinosaurs, but when you get into it, it's a battlefield. <laughs> and we're going to be discussing two animals, which are like the deciding point of our battlefield <laughs> today wow. for Jurassic Park. So it will be an interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. Um, so as always, um, this isn't a critique of the films per se. It's more of an exploration of the design choices and comparing those to what we now know about these animals as they were in the past. In, in many cases, the designs vary from their real-world counterparts. Paleontology is a constantly progressing science, some sort of sure Natalia can uh, tell us all about. Um, and quite often, new discoveries will con- uh, kind of contradict what we, we already know. Um, so it's not necessarily a case of films getting it wrong. It's just that we didn't know about it yet, or the artists decide to take it in a different direction. Um, and lots of paleontology is uh, educated guesses as well, which I'm sure we'll be talking about as well. So there's some things that we can't be 100% sure on, but we've got a pretty good idea. Um, but before we get into things, Natalia, it would be great um, if the listeners could get a bit more of an idea about your, your research and, and, and what you do. Okay, so I'm a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh, and my work is on describing pterosaurs from Middle Jurassic of Scotland. And Middle Jurassic is super important period. It was when the basic basal Triassic uh, body plants started evolving and turning into body plants we know and recognize from late Jurassic and Cretaceous, so all your sauropods, allosaurus, the raptors. Uh, but all that evolution happened between early Jurassic and Middle Jurassic, which we know absolutely nothing about because it's very poorly preserved. But there's, there are bits in Britain, in, uh, especially in Scotland, which preserve elements from Middle Jurassic, especially pterosaur elements, which fill that gap of evolution that I'm sort of trying to fill. And recently, if you have been following Pantology News, I recently filled one of those gaps with new pterosaur, Yarkskianak, which means from Scottish Gaelic, winged reptile. And he's the biggest uh, Jurassic pterosaur that's well preserved uh, in such great condition. It's preserved in three dimensions, it's articulated, 
So all the bones are still attached as they would in real life and it's mainly complete. It doesn't have that many missing aspects and the things that are missing were destroyed by the tide because it was just close on a tidal platform. It's an amazing specimen, like landing in a bottle example of preservation, which doesn't happen anywhere else on the planet. Uh, so yeah, I've been describing Yark and how it fits in the middle Jurassic story of Terrace Revolution. And be on the lookout for more stories because I'm working on some more material from Sky. So this, so this exciting. story. <laughs> it's amazing. And, and I'm pretty sure if any, anyone's listening along who kind of follows along with any, to be honest, any any news outlet <laughs> would have seen Yerk because it really took over like the news agenda on the day, didn't it? It did. I did not expect it to happen. I sort of expected it to just go by. It was a busy net news day as it was. And we sort of, as I researched, I just forward to your PR team and hope for the best. And we forward in there and there was just, everybody was excited. and Everybody started booking the recording days and uh, radio booths and other stuff. So uh, small person, which I thought is going to be just because, you know, it's not a T-Rex. It's not a raptor. It's not like a yeah. huge dinosaur in an egg. It's just a common gathering pterosaur. It's it's big and nice as a fossil, but like, oh, it's one of the Ramparinkoids. That that doesn't have that much media power. <laughs> but and yet, <laughs> he was all over BBC and SITV and Reuters, and I'm, I'm happy he got so popular. I don't think he yeah. that guy when he died 160 million years ago. He's going to be a celebrity <laughs> for one day, but you, you never know who's going to become in the future. <laughs> oh, it's so, so cool. Um, all right, cool. I think I actually just one more question. I just like there's a lot of people who are listening, like younger people as well, that are, are quite interested in, in paleontology as like a field and stuff. And I wonder if, if you'd be able to just briefly kind of say how you how you kind of got into it as well, because I know that's a thing that lots of people are interested in. OK, actually, I entered paleontology almost by mistake. I just sort of went uh, to wow. various open days of universities and I live close to the University of Manchester. I saw earth science departments just sort of went in, uh, did not expect to enjoy it much, but on the presentation of what the department has to offer, they had a slide on uh, paleontology and looking at chemistry of archaeopteryx. I was flabbergasted. I did not expect something like wow. this happening in my city where I currently live. And after just being in another one open day, I just realized I can't be a paleontologist. I only have to get into the earth science department. So I sort of started focusing by getting a degree uh, in UK A-levels, in ge geology, uh, geography, because we don't have geology, and uh, biology. And got uh, good grades for it. I also come from underprivileged backgrounds, so I also had scholarships and some supports uh, there's Manchester Access Programme. There are access programs for every major university that helps you to lower grade boundary and get some financial support if you have first generation or working class uh, uh, academic. Uh, and thanks to that, I went to University of Manchester and I did integrated masters in geology, but specialized then in paleontology. And from specialization in paleontology, they were integrated masters, which I did on chemistry of uh, avian bones from Green River Formation. So study of birds, and I did uh, geology of Isle of Skye. Uh, there was opportunity of doing a PhD or doctoral studies in Edinburgh on geology of sky and looking at chemistry of flying reptiles. Like, okay, I have similar experience from my master's. I can just translate experience uh, from studying birds to studying pterosaurs and uh, from looking at chemical uh, uh, fingerprints on bones, I can do CT scans of the bones. So there's a natural progression from master's to PhD. And my PhD is sponsored by NERC, which is a government governmental organization which also uh, sponsors academics. So basically, I get paid to learn and get qualifications, which is a pretty good gig. So if you want to go into paleontology, look out for your local universities, see if they have geology departments and 
when they have geology department, look out for scholarships, they have some inclusivity. And from then you can sort of follow footpaths from undergraduate, undergraduate to master's to PhD and eventually being a full-on paleontologist. At least I hope so. I'm still <laughs> in the phase of paleontology uh, and uh, completing my doctorate. Uh, but yeah, soon I'll be a doctor of paleontology, which is something I didn't expect. But yeah, don't worry, if you have to go into paleo, you can do it. It's there's steps to follow. I also recommend going and volunteering in museums. I did other volunteering in Bolton and Manchester Museum. It gets you connected with people that do paleontology. It allows you to have hands-on experience for education and creation. Uh, and it's also quite a good thing to do if you have free weekend to, it, it feels good as a person to doing some outreach for kids or helping museum out because those institutions usually need animals out of hands always. So if you can do some volunteering, even better if it's paid volunteering, go for it. <laughs> And if you're living in a location that has all of amazing fossils, feel free to go and search for them. Just check if it's allowed, the hammering. Yes. The summaries are protected by some code. So before you start hammering, check yeah. <laughs> and then go out. Usually big cities in UK and big cities overall are sitting on fossil spots uh, because of the industrial revolution. So it's usually close to coal mines. So it's pretty likely the city you're living in is sitting on a big fossil of bed. Just check your local geology and see where fossil spots might be. <laughs> that's awesome advice. And yeah, I can just attest that part about volunteering in museums. That's how I got into working in museums as well, in education departments, but also volunteering in paleo departments as well. So yeah, if, if you're able to, if you can dedicate the time, even just one day, one afternoon, one morning a week, it's so worth it. And as Natalia said, it's like, it's very fulfilling as well. It feels like a really good, fulfilling use of time. Um, cool. All right. Let's get into the uh, animals we're looking at today. First up, it would be good to kind of get out of the way the fact that these are not dinosaurs. They may have lived in the Mesozoic alongside dinosaurs. They may have been reptiles like dinosaurs, but these are not dinosaurs. Uh, now, there's obviously a lot of kind of uh, classification and taxonomy uh, kind of um, issues here as to why they're not dinosaurs. But I wonder, Natalia, if you were able to give us an idea of like, why aren't they dinosaurs? Okay, it gets into systemics and systematics of things. So <laughs> we recently discovered small lizard-like creatures called Lagerdopids uh, from uh, South uh, America and Madagascar, which sort of bridge that gap between dinosaurs and pterosaurs, which previously was pretty unknown because dinosaurs and pterosaurs started popping up in uh, early to middle Triassic, and those regions are not really well presented in the fossil record. And if they are, they're quite poorly preserved. It's really things like early pterosaurs, which most likely lived in arboreal settings, so they were uh, more tree climbers, an environment that doesn't really preserve well uh, in fossil records. So we don't have that good idea of, of early evolution of dinosaurs, of pterosaurs simultaneously. So the, the base of the tree is very, very poorly understood. And slightly it starts being recovered by things like Lagardopids, which are small lizards, which sort of point at that, that diversification of dinosaurs in uh, pterosaurs. Uh, but then uh, they also have their own separate thing. It's like looking, uh, saying humans are chimpanzees. Like we share the same common ancestor, we live at the same time period, but we're very, very different. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so it's more or less similar uh, regarding that relationship. So they currently it's widely accepted their sister. Uh, taxa, uh, but that relationship is still questionable just because of the time period when that diversification happened. Right, thank you so much. It's good to kind of get that that cleared up in the first place. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're looking at the pterosaurs from the Jurassic films. Now, uh, currently in the films that have been out, there are two species. There's Pteranodon and there's Dimorphodon. 
But also, and as of the time of release of this, this film might be out, but Jurassic World Dominion will also have a third species, the Quetzalcoatlus, um, as well. So we're going to be looking at all of these. But I think it's best to start with Pteranodon, because this is the first one that popped up. Um, it's been in every single film, apart from the first Jurassic Park film. Um, and it actually appeared in the toy line uh, for the first Jurassic Park film. It's like a little blue-headed uh, figurine that you could flap the wings that is actually also in Toy Story. It's, it's the one that Sid takes the head off and puts on a, on a doll. It's the exact same toy, so that's like a cool little bit of trivia. Uh, but there's interesting thing about the Trandon in the films is that there are three very different designs that pop up. There's one in the, the Lost World in the final shot. It's barely in the film. There's Dress Park 3, where lots of people think that's the first one. Um, and then there's the, the design that's become consistent for the Jurassic World uh, series of um, of pictures. So so we'll be, we'll be looking at all of these. Um, there are some similarities, but there are some differences here as well. Um, so I kind of wanted to start with uh, Pteranodon um, in, 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 in its name. It means winged and toothless, which is quite ironic because um, it's depicted as having teeth in the, in the Jurassic Park 3 version. So already that's quite quite interesting um and yeah it'd be good to kind of get an idea of of the real world animal like how big it was when it lived that sort of stuff um so in 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 the films it's listed as as being about having a wingspan of about 9.7 meters uh in Jurassic Park 3 and then down to six meters in, in Jurassic World how does this kind of stack up to the real world animal I mean, wingspan estimates a very contentious thing because usually when we get to very big sizes, the completeness of the record starts being worse. So we have the small specimens which are better preserved than the bigger ones. And the big one, bigger ones, we get the size estimates by just comparing um, morphology and anatomy of the small specimens. So it's usually based on estimations. Uh, and it also it's very hard to see by some extent of an animal because the fossil record is very preferential. We don't get the full image; we just get preferential image, and the preferential image slightly prefers small individuals. At least in uh, this big pattern in Jurassic and Jurassic of juveniles and superadults preserving, and when we go into Cretaceous, usually it's all the animals that are being preserved. So wingspans are big question marks because this it's a lot about extrapolation of data. But pterodons are super, super interesting because unlike a lot of pterosaurs, which are usually known from one specimen, two specimens, or scraps of bones, which are might not even be species to themselves, they're known from all, over a thousand different species wow. of specimens, which is an amazing sample size. It also is to do statistical studies on them. Uh, but out of that thousand, maybe 400 is usable on a sort of taxonomic species level, okay. which is still a very, very, very big amount. And Alpterodons that we know, uh, with some exceptions, come from the Smoky Hill member of the Nyabera Formation, which is in Lake Cretaceous, uh, and it represents very far offshore environment. So we are miles and miles away from the coastline, which is very interesting because that shows those animals could go very, very far into uh, the sea and sort of live in a very distant environment without attachment to the land. And we know they were not just carried by rivers or something because they articulated. So when we find them in water, on the when they were found preserved, they're preserved. Many of them are still articulated, so the bones are still in the main joints, which means. They died recently and they could not Incredible. have been carried for miles and miles and miles from the ocean because usually, you know, you start decomposing, animals start eating you and sort of start breaking up. So we know they definitely were very, very far into uh, waterways. 
uh, which uh, with dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, you see them uh, diving and being around the water waves, uh, which is not as far-fetched because we know they live in that environment. Maybe not fast diving, and as we can see in, <laughs> I think, is it the first Jurassic World when they sort of go for the... Yeah, um, they dive in and, to get then, the assistant. Yeah, and then in the preview of the new Jurassic World film, yes. which they are also also in clear face, and gun, they jump in the water in gun-like fashion. Because they yeah. have big crests, they were quite very ornate, and they're not as well adapted to something like this as gannets. But they lived in similar environments, uh, and possibly they were buoyant. So like ducks, wow. they could sit on the water surfaces, and they had webbed feet. So they could sort of uh, be like ducks in the ocean, and just sort of sprang from the ocean and start flying, uh, as uh, waterfall do. Uh, so, yeah, they were <laughs> very washer animals, Caradons. Uh, and I think we only get that impression from the new Jurassic World films. They're more sort of mountainous creatures in Jurassic Park 3. And in yeah. Jurassic Park 2, they're just pashing and roaring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's no, it's a really good point that you bring up. But, yeah, we do see them kind of diving to get prey and such in, mm-hmm. in the Jurassic World films, which is which is like a cool kind of idea that they've put on the film there. It's definitely something different from what we've seen previously and and normally when you see pterosaurs in big movies they they tend to just kind of flap around and squawk um but yeah just on that note actually about living around the coast and stuff even the ones in Jurassic Park 3 they live in like a canyon and their nests are like on the edges of Mm -hmm. cliff faces do you think that is that something that we have any kind of evidence for or was that probably likely uh, the idea of sort of cliff face rookeries, as they're called, came from looking at distribution of how many males and females are in certain uh, deposits. So we know there's uh, more females than males, so that might be showing us something interesting about dynamics within those pterosaurs. And usually when something like this happens, sort of, it suggests uh, a polygonous uh, relationships within uh, animals, which we sometimes observe in birds, uh, which uh, do crowd in rookeries, which might be on cliff faces. It means you have one central male that has sort of uh, looks after a few females. But of course, that might be also due to preservation conditions, just sort of the preservation preferring small animals, which might be the females, or the larger ones, which are the males. So it's kind of hard to tell whether, whether they were actually polygonous and living in kind of that kind of environments, or maybe something else, and it's just the definite bias that gives you that impression. Uh, but we know pterosaurs lived in uh, gregarious or group-based nesting sites. Yes, we have some unlated pterosaurs from China, which show uh, the layers of multi-age pterosaurs uh, within the proximity of nests, and they sort of repeating on different bed strata, sort of suggesting pterosaurs return to the same nesting sites within land, uh, and then maybe moving out into more seaway. Because, of course, you couldn't have... <laughs> it would be weird to have a parchment-like uh, eggs in open water, so they definitely yeah. went... Uh, somewhere in the land to uh, and rigorously had big nesting sites. So it's not as far-fetched as we see in the Jurassic world, but we have no access to any of it uh, for Pterodon. We just have the open sea right. deposits. And something like cliff faces doesn't really preserve, because even when you see at cliff faces today, it's something that gets constantly eroded and destroyed by tide and stuff. So cliff-based right. animals and cliff-based behavior are out of books for pathologists. That's such a good point. That's something that I'd never considered before. But yeah, wow. Yeah, of course. Yeah, the, the rock is constantly being being crumbled away. Yeah. Especially when you gonna... live in Britain. You can see that yeah. it's just like, oh, it's being yeah. destroyed. That entire environment that many yeah. birds frequent on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, so so um so Pteranodon would have lived on the coast and, and seafaring as well. Um I guess that I mean 
from that we can kind of gather that it would have had a diet of fish among other things but I, I i do believe that they found some fish bones and scales mm-hmm. in the stomach cavities of some of those specimens haven't they yeah also interestingly we, they found evidence of fishes eating thrasers of trandons as well Whoa. So we know that they were eating fishes and also were eaten eaten by fishes there's a very good fossil described by, by dave horn of uh, a shark tooth being lodged in a neck above trandon oh, <laughs> it's pretty quite unequivocally there, but we have no idea if the pterosaurs just sort of died on the surface and the shark just sort of scavenged it, or did the shark actively jump on the water and catched it. We know that sharks ate pterodons. I mean, throw the pterodons ate other fishes because we have a lot of evidence of uh, fish scales and fish uh, bones within the good contents. Uh, so, yeah, we have pretty good uh, re- reasoning uh, and evidence of the entire how do you call it, food web within that yeah. environment. So that's interesting. We didn't see it. I mean, the turtles were eaten by jumping out <laughs> marine yeah. reptiles. So that's if true. that happened to sharks, yeah. that might not be able to books for other carnivorous animals that are slightly bigger than turtles. <laughs> Because they, they, um, the, 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 the real life animals that the pteranodons that would have lived in the late Cretaceous America, they had quite, um, quite large beaks, didn't they? And, and they were, they were quite, um, they curved upwards as well. Mm-hmm. So does that, that kind of, I mean, th- th- this has come from someone that really doesn't know. So um, but like, does that kind of suggest that it's quite likely that they would have scooped fish out of the water and then swam, swam close over the, the, the surface, you think? I mean, the, the scooping thing, it's very, very arguable. A lot of people start arguing about it because some bears like skimmers do it professionally and sort of that's how they feed. But skimmers have very, very different adapted jawlines. They have very, very big uh, symphysis or the small fused bit of the jaw, something that turtles have that looks more like, it looks kind of similar, but it's nowhere as advanced as something like skimmer birds. Uh, and also that will require pterosaurs. Uh, some people thought the pterosaurs might have pouches, or pterosaurs might have pouches like pelicans, oh. but pterosaurs have to be very, very, very light to be able to fly. And yeah. so scooping a, a lot of water with fishes might be just unfeasible yeah. for those animals because suddenly they become much, much, much heavier and they might not sustain this kind of weight, which also brings to the point of Jurassic World of just sort of grabbing people and <laughs> yes. carrying them around despite people being almost in weight of the entire animals. That will be super, super likely. They have to be very, very light to keep this big body afloat and just grabbing something. The measly legs would be out of the books entirely. Yeah, this is something I really wanted to talk about. Yeah, so like the, understandably, because I mean, in, in the films, it, it's it's scary if people get eaten by the creatures, right? So the pterosaurs, the pteranodons specifically, like to grab people by the shoulders and pick them up take them off to a nest or drop them in the water or or peck them to death or all that sort of stuff but yeah they they wouldn't have actually been able to to pick people up because they were they they were too light as you said but also you mentioned earlier they had they had webbed feet they the, the ones in the films like all of the different types of pterosaurs in the films have like almost like eagles mm-hmm. talons on their feet don't they that's completely off isn't it yeah no pterosaur feet are more similar to human feet they are very very heavily padded <laughs> when you look at the some well-preserved uh, ones with the scales they look like human feet with very big claws i, I assume they were quite disgusting in real life we even have footprints <laughs> of them uh, but also that means they were not super super flexible they had very long metal tarsals which meant they couldn't really bend them quite easily they didn't have seismoids or stuff to, 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 
grabbing action. And they had they were very very big for the claws, but they were not made for grasping as ospreys do other creatures. Mm. Uh, and in something like Chardon, those uh, uh, legs were quite robust relative to some other pterosaurs. But that wasn't that was used more for working on tertial uh, locomotion rather than anything related to predation because most of the muscular uh, mass of pterosaurs is in the jaws and in the uh, shoulder girdle which is used for the flying and when you go into the pelvis and the backbones uh, they just get much much more weaker regarding the uh, muscular support so uh, all the power of pterosaurs is within the jaws the be- or the beak and its wings uh, and you go slightly behind it and they just get very measly very weak human like feet <laughs> Yeah, because like even even we don't see the one in the lost world. It's barely in the film, but it it doesn't go for any anything. But it even uses its feet to kind of grab onto a branch and perch mm-hmm. on a branch. I guess if 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 a real life Trandon had like kind of those more flat human like feet, that mm-hmm. would have been quite a hard balancing act for a, a real life Trandon to perch yeah. on a very small branch. So when we imagine flying animals, we think about birds and pterosaurs can fly. So we immediately, our mind goes into finding an analogy. But with the grasping of branches, or even swinging the upside down as bats do, will not be feasible at, at all for pterosaurs. They have very, very big claws that they definitely use for something. But it was nowhere as advanced as branching or the grasping in bats. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of reconstructions of pterosaurs, just hanging upside down or just sort of branching. And it's simply something that would be super, super unlikely. Uh, which is a shame, but also means they use the legs for something else, and we have no idea what because there's no animal animals <laughs> to show us what they did with their very big human-like feet. With <laughs> a lot of very thick pads, and those were, uh, feet were also webbed like ducks. So something very weird going on with turtle legs, which usually are much, much, much smaller than their arms. They like their feet know. are like three times smaller than the main arm. So. <laughs> if they were wow. grabbing things with something, they were possibly using their main quick claws, uh, which some pterosaurs, especially from, from nearby formation, like uh, Lithopterodon Nyctosaurus, completely lost. So Nyctosaurus is constructed to Pterodon. It's a, uh, slightly smaller. It has this fancy crest that looks like an L shape. And yeah. uh, Nyctosaurus lost its arms completely. So it's just wing without any claws or anything. So you can see this one didn't use the arms at all, and maybe was just living in more flying environment uh, exclusively, something like swifts. So there, there's something really interesting going on with pterosaurs. Some of them are just getting rid of the hands entirely. Some of them are lying on their hands, uh, and they, we have no idea what they're doing with the legs, apart from, you know, wow. walking. <laughs> yeah, that's that's incredible. So, like, um, also about about their legs is that um, all, all three variants of the Pteranodon in the films, they're their legs are completely separate from their wings. They hang down separately. Mm-hmm. Whereas like I've seen quite a lot of reconstructions of Tyrannodon where the wing kind of attaches to the side of the leg. Mm-hmm. To the ankle. And yeah. you know that from the soft formation of pteranodactyloid specimens, which are usually soft tissue preservation, and the membrane just sort of, it's more butt-like or colugo-like with them attaching to all the appendages rather than just staying in a bird-like fashion only restricted to their uh, wings or their, their hands. Uh, so yeah, they were slightly less, more restricted with the ranges of motions, and uh, the membranes were slightly more outstretched. We can imagine that looking kind of weird. I sort of wanted to go into more bird-like aesthetic, as they yeah. usually do, because usually when we see something flying, it has to look like a bird, and because yeah. that's the only thing everybody has a <laughs> reference to. So we go for that analogy. 
And I guess it works better for our brains because we now can more or less recognize the creature as it works. But I think bats or even things like colugus, which are flying squirrels, have slightly more analogous representation of the attachment of the membranes. They had a lot of fleshy membrane around, and that membrane, when stretched, was quite thin and quite slender, and unlike anything we see in any other flying animals. Yeah, I mean, it like just on that note of them looking more like birds in the films like that the especially with the the lost world variant and and just want to say this at this point i think all three of these designs are really cool as like creature designs but the lost world one has a like a, almost like a little hook on its beak like a like a like a like an eagle or something right because that's that's totally fabricated because that kind of comes from our our conception of a flying creature looking like a bird so that that kind of makes sense uh i guess <laughs> when you're designing a creature um but yeah, uh, just kind of um, let's. I think with Tarana, we've, we've discussed quite a lot of things where it diverges in the films from the real world animal. But there's something in the Jurassic World version design which um, kind of links in something you said earlier. You said um, that there's a not so many muscles in the legs, but quite a lot of muscles relating to the the head um, and also the chest um, mm-hmm. where where the wings attach. And that the Jurassic World version of the Tarandon has a really deep chest. Which which looks like they've kind of got that you know they've they've looked at the real world animal and gone okay cool this is where the muscles attach so that's something that that in terms of its body plan looks quite good. Yeah, I I mean it's uh, not one to one reconstruction of the musculature, but at least it visually can show people that those animals the body mass was concentrated more around the chest area rather than the back because. We, we as humans and mammals, we usually just sort of see even distributed. With thrusters, all the power was in area that's around your shoulders, and the rest of it was pretty lackluster. So it's kind of uh, weird looking uh, out of sight, because usually we just sort of assume the hand limbs take the most beating from musculature and so on, keeping the animal float. In thrusters, it's the arms. Uh, like in birds, it's uh, the legs that play a big part in getting animal off the ground. In thrusters, they use the arms or the wings to get themselves afloat, and that's why they needed such musculature, because the biggest, hardest thing about flying is getting into the air from the ground. So the flying itself, you just rely on gliding, you just stretch out your membrane, that's fine. It's getting the plane out of the runway, and we require a lot of fuel, a lot of musculature to actually pull it out. And Tarsus needed that for that uplift, and in birds, that's in the legs, in Tarsus, that's in the arms, and that's also the case for many bats. So they were able to take off from from a ground level, weren't they? Which which is is what we see in the films as well. They they they, they take off from that 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 really creepy standing. I mean, I say it's creepy because it's all it's all in mist in Jurassic Park Three. But the way they stand just looks so unlike like anything really that we have today, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, those wings have to go somewhere when they're walking around. <laughs> I think in the new preview of uh, the uh, new Jurassic World film, we can see them doing the quadruped, uh, the uh, lounge based on the forelimbs. So you sort of see them uh, when they are in the watery surface, they sort of using the yeah. forelimbs to sort of prop themselves up and then start flying. So they sort of follow the newest reconstructions of the pterosaurs going, starting flying, rather than just them being like birds getting on the hind limbs and just sort of slightly jumping and then slightly flying for that. No, they use their arms to just pop up and jump up. Uh, doing more of a big push-up with a jump rather than yeah. uh, like <laughs> birds do with a small hop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and just while we're talking about um, the body of the, the Trinodon, is that in, in all of these films, it's got a covering of um, of scales as well. Mm-hmm. Now, um, 
what what would the the, the bodies of, of pterosaurs mainly be covered in in real life back when they were alive okay it's a pretty hot topic because there's some pathologists <laughs> that are arguing that it's some decomposition features and nobody wants to argue with them but uh, it, it 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 might start a fight when you're on a conference so uh for now a lot of pathologists agree that they cover in thickener fibers which might or might not be related to feathers and fuss but it, possibly keratinous uh, integuments. Keratin is the same thing you have in your hair and in your fingernail yeah. uh, that covers the animal from the start of the head to the tail. We have a lot of fossil evidence uh, from various formations from different species confirming that they were actually covered pretty extensively. And it's not just one of or something, one species, something it must possibly be uh, prevalent throughout the entire clade. Because it uh, it is likely because we're endothermic, so they were generating their own heat, and it's pretty good to be fuzzy to keep that heat in place, uh, and yeah, <laughs> so they're fluffy. <laughs> I've never, yeah, we have so no idea how fluffy they were for pterodons and petrocarpus, the big species, but the small ones, uh, they were as fluffy as a squirrel would be. <laughs> <laughs> What's quite cool is that there's um there's a few images out there of uh, originally the Tranodon in the Lost World was going to have a much bigger role. The whole ending of the film was actually going to be a set piece with the the Tranodons chasing um, the, um, the the survivors on, and they're on motorbikes and hang glides and all sorts of stuff. And they actually had an animatronic built, like a bust of the Tranodon with its head, and it was covered in 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 fluff. It, so it was really interesting. So they had that in the design, and then and then it was removed. Um, but yeah, that was really cool to see. I, I, if anyone's listening hasn't seen that, do look it up, The Lost World, Tranodon Animatronic. I think it was auctioned recently. And I just wanted to pick up as well, you, you mentioned about keratin um, on, on the Tranodons. Um, the, the one in Jurassic World has these these kind of protrusions around its eyes on its face. Those looks like those do look like they're meant to be made of keratin. So that's quite interesting that they've kind of gone for that decision there. And it does also look like the the um the crests as well of all of these different designs are are like covered in keratin as well so yeah i i i, I guess maybe that's that's what they were going for there <laughs> i mean you can sort of get keratin from collates that are left on the uh, skulls of things of the animals so usually if you have a small pit on a uh, surface of something that might indicate presence of a keratin sheath i'm not a an expert so i'm not sure if the uh, crests and there's any evidence of them being above eyes, like just we have evidence of sort of keratinins covering above T-Rex eyes or something like that in India. There's also for pterodons. I'm of a non-pterodactoid Jurassic person, so the late Cretaceous pterodons are not my ballpark. <laughs> but uh, for something like beaks and uh, other features, that would not be out of question because we know other pterosaurs had keratinous crests and other keratinous additions on the crania as it is, especially things like tapejarids, which have enormous, uh, wonderful crests, which also have different structures of keratin within it uh, that were possibly used for social communicating. So maybe that's also what it meant. But uh, the, a lot of uh, crests in pterodons are bony, so they're created from the frontal bone of the skull. Uh, and they vary between species, uh, species and between sexes of uh, the pterodons. So there's a different crest for male pterodon and different crests for female pterodon. Uh, and uh, we know that from amazing study that Bennett did, he just uh, looked at cross-section of different bonds to see if they're mature, and there's no sort of growing stage, and looked at statistics, and that showed that we have two different body types. One is slightly smaller with bigger pelvis, and that's good for laying eggs, and that's possibly the female, which is like 50% smaller than cool. the male, and the bigger males with quite big ornate uh, uh, crests, which vary maybe within species or maybe charged into other species because a lot of pterodons were renamed uh, 
Geostenbergia and down Draco recently. So this pronoun, but there's also other pronouns, subspecies, and Pantor is arguing which one is valid now. So <laughs> it's super complicated and I don't want to get into no. <laughs> But there's a lot of people of just if Octarnal has very big ornate uh, crest, that might be a Geostenbergia instead of Octarnal. But right. it's a kind of worms. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll, we'll stay clear of that. It was quite interesting is that in once again, going back to the Lost World's um, development, is that a lot of the Trenodon artwork did have that kind of larger Geostenbergia crest. So mm-hmm. that's, that's quite interesting. Uh, just on these designs, um, you mentioned the difference in the crest between uh, males and it's females. Yeah, uh, the, the, the Jurassic World version has a, dis- it's a much smaller crest than the, the one in the Lost World Jurassic Park mm-hmm. 3 that kind of more lines up with that female crest that we see in the mm-hmm. Fossil Record, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's weird that they did they do do the size differences and crest differences in the other thing because I can't remember them just doing uh, the diversity in the you know the preview that we see in the Dominion. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. I think I, do you know what I think they were all the same crest size, but they had different colors. Like there were some that were like a kind of blue tint and some mm-hmm. that were like a red tint. So that's a good point because it makes sense in the film because they're like. I'm pretty sure most of them are females with the pterosaurs as well as the mm-hmm. dinosaurs. But yeah, that, that bit is set in the Cretaceous, so there should be some males there. Unless, <laughs> as you said earlier, that there's it, it could be the case that Tyrandon lived in a co- colony where there was only one or a few males and then a bunch of females. So per- potentially the male was just was off somewhere. Maybe. <laughs> so, uh, so far, the fossil record is 2 to 1 for females and males. So <laughs> there oh, should right. be slightly more <laughs> males in that area. So, but maybe they were they're flying and hunting and something and just left a few months in the area. No idea. But it will be interesting for them to do something about size and uh, crest different uh, differences because you can sell more toys. That's more yeah. variation. So I'm surprised they didn't venture into that personally. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, to have different kind of designs within the same film because I understand that the designs have changed a bit because it's different teams designing them. But if, yeah, diversity within the film would be really cool. Um Cool. Is there, is there anything else you want to talk about on Pteranodon before we move on to our next pterosaur? I just want to say, like, because in Jurassic World Park 3, we, we have different raptors for males and females. So yes. it's weird that they didn't do it for Pterodons in the same film. Yeah. You know what? Okay, so I'm pulling out another kind of concept art thing. There was a design of a Pteranodon that was, like, fully black with a red crest. Mm-hmm. And there's a toy of it. It's in a couple of video games, I think. And I... I, I don't know. I think it's speculation, but I think people thought that was like the alpha male or something mm-hmm. like that. So I think maybe it was planned at one point, but it's once again, it's a shame about the things that don't make it into the film because that would have been kind of cool. <laughs> okay, um, I guess we can move on from Pterodon. Spectrum being very interesting because that's like when everybody talks about Pterosaurs or Pterodactyls, everybody thinks about Pterodon. And I also was fascinated why this particular one. And I guess it's just because it was the first big Pterosaur to be uncovered, that it was very well preserved with many specimens. So it could go to many museums and inspire other people. And it also was from the United States. So it had much yes. more coverage than things from Bavaria, despite being also very well preserved and known before Pterodon. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting why this one species became the universally recognized no. pterodactyl that is used in all films, concept art, and stuff. It's go to pterosaur if somebody needs one. And it's just fascinating because we have so much diversity of different ones, but everybody wants this one. Yeah. <laughs> and in Park, we have so many 
you have many pterosaurs in films and they all are pterodons. Yeah. Being recent. Oh, it's a really good point. And it really does kind of show the bias towards, like, as you mentioned, especially with um, specimens from the USA, um, that, that, yeah, like when you look at dinosaur media, it's pretty much American dinosaurs <laughs> that are everywhere. It's Stegosaurus, Triceratops, Tyrannosaurus. Well, is pretty big as well, but it was discovered by US scientists and also, you know, yes. featured in the, uh, in the American National History Museum and had a lot of American coverage despite being from Mongolia. So it also has a lot of US-based tint. Uh, so that I guess that's why, apart from Spinosaurus, because that's the only one yeah. that was d described by German scientists and comes from uh, North Africa, but it also gets out of the buzz uh, as much as the other American, uh, North American, US inclined uh, animals. But yeah, it's interesting. But it goes to Dimorphodon, which is not a USA-based turtle at all. It's from UK. Yes. Uh, yeah, so Dimorphodon is the next one up. So yeah, um, so this one was first kind of shown in Jurassic World and is also in Dominion, going to be in Dominion, is already in Dominion, depends when this comes out, um, but was, and, and it's actually one of my, I think it might be my favourite pterosaur, but probably for the weirdest reason, it was in uh, a, a PlayStation 1 video game for The Lost World, as like an enemy that popped up in a couple levels when you played as, once when you played as a raptor, one when you play as a human, and it is the most frustrating it is, it is just the, the worst enemy in any video game. It's so annoying. You can't shoot it. You can't grab it. It's flying around. It's annoying you. But it has a beautiful design. It, it, it looks like, a, it looks like a, a green and yellow puffin in that game. It's really, really cool. Um, but yes, that's, we're not going to be talking about that one. We're going to be talking about the one that's in the Jurassic World films. And this is... Um, it looks quite different. I, I don't <laughs> get the reason behind the, the design of this it? one. Go on, because uh, pterodons and quetzalcatlus, which we're going to discuss, are pterodactyloids. The diaphragm is a non pterodactyloid, so they're slightly more basal pterosaurs, which are known for their very long tails with colorful tail veins. Uh, and uh, diaphragm is known for its enormous schools filled with finished rat to keep it much, much lighter, despite being quite big, by a lot of kills. So that's very interesting animal on a visual level with very big orbit and this sizable head with very nice ornate tail. So it could be looking absolutely lovely, absolutely scary, but otherwise it just looks like a pterosaur with a raptor school or T-Rex school slapped on it. <laughs> and mostly because that for them it's varied tooth. Yeah. They have the same teeth. They have like yeah. weird... <laughs> yeah. It's it's so strange because yeah that that is literally its name. It's it's very tooth like it, it it and that's rare for a reptile, isn't it, to have mm -hmm. have different types of teeth within their mouth. It's it's compared to mammals, in which yeah, obviously anyone listening to this will know mammals have lots of different types of teeth in their mouth. Humans, we have we have three different variants of of, of teeth for different jobs. But when you especially when you look in, in at reptiles, it's not as common. So that it's a key feature I, of I this animal. And it's, why it's would you pick that bizarre. creature? I just have, get rid of all the interesting things that have come with it. And the big head allows you to be very expressive with it. Like you said, there was this uh, pantology meme of making it puffin like with puffin like yeah. colors, just because this kind of analogy of big heads comes into it, despite being yeah. very, very different from the puffin school. Uh, but yeah, diaphragm is interesting because that's the first properly described pterosaur that too become, it came out of Britain. Because previously we all only had pterosaurs from Germany, which were first pterosaurs ever. And then Marianne, she was a hobbyist, a pantologist uh, from Limeridge's time of Dorset, uh, one of the best fossil collectors ever. Uh, she was not cited in most of her works because she was a woman. Uh, yes. She discovered 
those amazing uh, diaphragm skeletons and they are absolutely lovely when you look at them they're like small works of art and uh, the schools are completely well preserved lots of other yeah. bones are still in articulation and it's all on this in this black uh art like canvas of the uh, lime shale uh not lime shale sorry uh blue lias <laughs> shell which is so representative of the dorset uh formations which are if you have opportunity to go to the Jurassic coast do go there. It's an amazing place if you want to go some casual fossil hunting, and you are sort of guaranteed to yes. find some nice ammonite fossils of some bit of uh, ichthyosaurus. I would definitely, um, definitely say yes. Do uh, as of the time of recording, I, I just actually came back from the Jurassic Coast. It's located in in Dorset in southern England, and yeah, it's not only is it beautiful. Um, and you can find fossils, but there's really nice uh, fish and chips or just chips, depending on what you eat. So, uh, yeah, definitely check that out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the pterosaurus the, the, is represented by the fossil is nowhere as whatever is shown in Jurassic World. It's such a wasted opportunity and they don't add anything interesting for the narrative apart from being just another creature that snaps at people and it's sort of minor inconvenience. So I don't know what was the narrative pushed for including it and why the weird design that doesn't add anything new apart from let's make Quetzalcoatl body with raptor-like head. But it has very visible pigment fibers, so that's only plus I can get. That is good. Yeah, no, that's very true. They are very visible on its back. And but yeah, like, honestly, the amount of people that I that I've watched Jurassic World with, like, these are people who are who know the films or or have perhaps completely, you know, like, just aren't, aren't so interested. They're like, why does that? Why they say pterodactyl? <laughs> why does that pterodactyl have a T-Rex head? Uh, and it's just like, yeah, it's... It, it's not meant to. <laughs> it's it is a really because yeah, as you said, like they've mm-hmm. got quite um quite a rounded snout, don't they? They have got the big head. I mean, that is true. They do have a smaller body with a quite a big head. Oh uh, yeah, so 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 for people listening, and Natalia's holding up a really really cool kind of that is a is that one to one scale model of a dimorphodon. Yeah, because you can you guys can kindly hear us. Imagine animal that's around cat size. And that's a diamond and they have enormous, enormous head with yes. very big, lovely eyes and two different sets of teeth. The teeth at the front are very, very different and fang-like, but you have yeah. small sets of small teeth and the bottom jaw, uh, and the bottom jaw also undulates. It's a very complicated and interesting animal with a very, very slender, nice skull, <laughs> which you cannot appreciate in Jurassic World at all. Yeah, yeah, really, really thin skull there, yeah. I mean, in terms of size, the, the Jurassic World one's also a bit oversized. The Jurassic World website lists it as a three-metre wingspan. It's around 1.5 metres uh, that It's still quite sizable for Jurassic pterosaurs, uh, but uh, it's no, nowhere else. It will not be snapping at other people quite uh, definitely. on a smaller uh, scale of animal. And uh, yeah. the thing with things like Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, it always fascinates me because those animals are quite analogous to seagulls or the seabirds. And those animals generally... I mean, seagulls are a bad example because they do have yeah. <laughs> Especially the seagulls in the UK. We've got the biggest seagulls in the world. They are like the UK. coastal towns. They're like the <laughs> they kings of it. When you go with ships, you have to fight with them for it. <laughs> 
Yes. And there may be a circle thing of them just going yeah. to shops and just <laughs> buying things without paying. So, <laughs> so they cracked the system. Uh, yes. But yeah, with Jurassic Park and Jurassic World films, all animals are so aggressive, while most animals, seagulls excluded, are quite pacifist and just don't want to interact with people and just uh, will not attack yeah. prey bigger than it because. Those animals are intelligent. They know they will lose a fight and they will not feed on larger prey. So I don't get why. Those I know it's for yeah. action and other things, but why are smaller species? I mean, if consignators are just making actions of swarming and they're making fine, interesting action scenes. Uh, but other animals are not scary monsters. And that will also apply for things like pterodons and pterodactyls because they, they fill the same niches as many birds currently do. And you are not afraid of a sparrow or a raven or a seagull like excluded, uh, an albatross or something, despite having comparable sizes to most yeah. pterosaurs. Uh, so, yeah, it's, I mean, it, of course, it's for action and it's fiction. Uh, but it's, it gives those animals quite wrong image of just being fear-mongering animals, despite being, you know, quite interesting social social yeah. animals. They're absolutely ravenous, aren't they? Because yeah, we, we see them in Jurassic World and they're just like swarming people. I think there is some sort of... I have seen this kind of being... I think it was on one of the viral websites. They kind of said, oh, well, the thing is, when they escaped the aviary, they headed for the, the largest body of water, which was the lagoon. And there just so happened to be people there, so they attacked the people because they were going for like fish and stuff in the lagoon. But yeah, they're, they're attacking people, which are huge compared to them. Um, and they really going for them is is pretty crazy i do love that idea though of like i'm just thinking of that yeah those videos of seagulls now just like just like walking into shops and stealing things that would have been such a cool kind of role like you could still find keep the trendons attacking people but you could just have the dimorphodons causing just mischief just stealing things from the gift shop we know that definitely not athletes fed on squids, so we have entire thing of they can just go to a seafood restaurant and get the oysters and other fishes and you know squids yeah. and things, <laughs> <laughs> octopuses, and just that that's the main go to food. And yeah. like the little thing, they didn't eat other dinosaurs; they ate squids and small fishes. So I don't think attacking humans yeah. for hungry animal would be you know as an alternative. And they were not hungry; they were animals in welcome. Zeus. I mean, they were very shrink wrapped, so I'm not here when they them. Yeah, that's a that's a good uh, term. I think it might have come up on this podcast before, but yeah, the the shrink wrapped it kind of relates back to like cling film, where you where you rewrap something, it's very tight, and you can see all the features. And in this case, with 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 extinct animals, you qu- quite often see them drawn or reconstructed, so you can see the the, the bones because that's obviously what we know of them most of the time. Like, of, of course, we do get some impressions of soft tissue, but it makes it very obvious what they're what what the paleo artist or, or animator is is drawing or recreating by showing those bones. But yeah, these ones there, especially their heads, are are like skulls, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, you can see all the fenestras or the small holes yeah. in the schools, which otherwise will be filled with air and other things. As from, you can completely see them in the model, despite us. Like if you if you look at a human, you cannot see where the fenestras will go because you have all the flesh and other things that are filling it in. But in all of uh, dinosaur constructions, because we only have fossils, uh, many people assume the holes that you see on the skulls were completely hollow, despite many of them being mus- muscle attachment points or filled with air or uh, filled uh, with other organs. So when you look at the skulls of many things, uh, especially diamond it will be fuller and rounder and less holy <laughs> because most of the things will be filled with other stuff rather than just nothing. Because what's the use of that then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, to just kind of, before we kind of end on Dimorphodon, there is something there 
that is very distinctive in a real life animal that they did get in the design, and that's the end of the tail. They've got like, um, what, what is that? What what is that for? Do, do we know what that's for? Okay, so the tail vein, we know it was supported by struts, and it varied a lot between different number of athletes. Some in some it was sort of heart shaped, diamond shaped. Some of them are sort of uh, razor shaped. Some are sort of kind of flowery shaped. So we know Northlights had very very decorative tails, and we have no idea for why. Maybe because they're so varied, they were used for uh, different meeting rituals. They also changed as animal grew. So they had different tail veins when they were small, and they changed into a different shape when they started growing up. So uh, those tail veins were used for some display feature, and also they might have been used for uh, flying because the tails were acting as wooders uh, in flight and they were quite stiff so they were not uh, as flexible as cattails might be it's more like, it's similar to raptors in fossils they're very 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 stiff supported by things like film processes so it was not a flexible fully tail it was just a straight rod that sort of moved left and right uh, right. which i have no idea if that's the case in the Jurassic world one it was a kind of free-flowing tail yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it definitely flopped around a bit yeah uh um well, <laughs> and it, uh, certainly some, some decisions were made with the Dimorphodon. Um, is there anything else we want to say about this one before moving on to our final pterosaur? We will be moving to a slightly better reconstruction because they, they didn't do a good job of Dimorphodon heads, but when we moved to Quetzalcoatlus, we, it's, it's slightly, slightly better. It's actually, I think, out of all pterosaurs we have looked at, it's the best one wow. for our presentation. This is great. <laughs> this is really good to hear. So, like, as of the time we're recording this, we've only really seen two very brief scenes. We've seen one from the Dominion prologue, where it seems to be scavenging uh, the remains of a dead dinosaur, um, and also a scene from the, the first trailer that was released of... Uh, I can't even say it's attacking a plane so that's really interesting Uh, but yeah first appeared in the franchise uh, way back in 1994 um, there was a toy of it codenamed Firebeak uh, that released for uh, Jurassic Park series 2 where there was like there was all these these really cool extinct animals they released that were never in the film there were like some synapsids in there there was a tanistrophius like a lizard with like a really long neck that was aquatic it was really it was an awesome time when they released loads of cool toys and they, they're still releasing loads of cool toys but yeah um and also a, a little bit of uh like deep trivia i think maybe some people listening will have seen this but it was also in a a pitch trailer that was originally made for Jurassic World, uh, the Jurassic World franchise before they made the first film, in which they, they, they've got a bunch of Quetzes um, kind of attacking a beach, which is really cool. So definitely find that out, Jurassic Park, Jurassic World pitch trailer. But yeah, let's 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 get into the the one that we see in Dominion because that's the that's someone that actually made it into the films. And straight off the bat, you said this is this is looking pretty it's looking pretty good, yeah. The, the, the best thing about Asdarkids is that we actually know not that much about it. The, the, so Asdarkids are the main family group to which Quetzalcoatlus belongs to, and they're right. the giant dinosaurs from late Cretaceous, although we have evidence of them being slightly earlier. Uh, so they were the biggest animals to ever be able to fly, reaching wingspans of over 10 meters in wow. some species. Uh, and uh, on vertical scale, they were uh, matching giraffes uh, regarding the sizes. So they were very, very big animals. Amazing. But we know very little about them. <laughs> <laughs> you can see them all the reconstructions and having all of papers, all of uh, news books. But when you look at actual fossils that they left behind, it's not very impressive, especially comparing to things that we have with Dimorphodon or uh, Pterodon, when we have huge specimens which are completely preserved for full skeletons. That's not really the case with uh, Quetzalcoatlus or as dark as a whole. 
The best preserved uh, Azdarkid is Django Pterus, which is uh, like five meter pterosaur from China, oh. and it's horribly preserved. It's oh. hor- It's just an impression in a fossil of the, the bits of neck and the rest of the body, but it's nothing to go on out for. So it's fascinating those displays became so, so popular because it's so exciting. But when you look down at the fossils, it's just a bit of a beak, a bit of a neck, <laughs> and, uh, uh, humerus, and that's about it. And we have entire species that which I just described from this very, very powerful material and extrapolated uh, by essential state reconstruction. So we, there's a lot of things we don't know about as darkets because they just don't preserve well, because they come, unlike Diamondfrodon or uh, Pteranon, which come from marine environments, most of the Quetzalcoatlus or Azdarkid species came from more terrestrial settings, which are not very good for preservation. Uh, and that means we don't have as nice image of them as we do with other uh, seafaring uh, pterosaurs. Right. So yeah. So so this this isn't a coastal animal. Um, so this the the the, the Quetzalcoatlus. I is, I for me personally, it's one of. I think it might be my favorite extinct animal that that ever existed because it is just so so weird looking. I I love in in the modern day world. I love weird looking animals. Like I let's be honest, animals that are kind of ugly. Like I love bulls. Like um like vultures and like eye eyes like nocturnal lemurs and this totally fits within that kind of category of animals that just look a bit weird but are just i I just love them they're so lovable when they look like this and it's got such a fitting name like it's quite a mouthful quetzalcoatlus but it's named after an aztec feathered serpent god called quetzalcoatl which is pretty fitting considering it has quite a long neck and would have also been covered in these kind of finer fibers as well. So yeah, um, I think that's that's really really cool. And um, and yeah, just just for anyone who's wondering, this is also a, a Cretaceous uh, animal as well, found in North America. Um, so the one that we've got in the film looks really good. There's there's one thing here though, um, and that's obviously this is one of the largest, if if not maybe the largest uh, that we found, mm-hmm. like flying animal. Uh, that's ever existed but the one in the film is it looks like it's absolutely ginormous <laughs> again it's the film they want to show the size and if it's a big animal in film you have to show it as a big big animal yeah. but the other big thing that we know it's flying a plane yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean they could have went to a smaller charter plane or small fighter jet something that can be quite as comparable but i guess they just wanted to have slightly bigger bomber size yeah <laughs> So, like, just pick something reasonable because there were sizes of charter planes easily. But why are you picking such bigger thing for a comparison? I have no idea. Yeah. Maybe it has some narrative sense. Uh, but I guess it was all for narrative reasons to make bigger puzzles rather than be accurate. And again, uh, like before starting this podcast, we're uh, saying about what, uh, just films being films and getting people interested in those animals. We yeah. want to show pterosaurs uh, can be ginormous. Show it big, next yeah. a big plane, and this clings with you know people's uh, uh, memories better than just showing something that's like four meters tall. Which that might be more accurate, but if you make it eight meters tall, that's really better. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely! Like this is gonna be, and this is gonna be an amazing scene. It's gonna, this is gonna stick with people. Like there's, there's nothing, there's, there's been nothing like this in a Jurassic film yet. There was the the trend on swarmed a plane, uh, not a plane, a uh, uh, helicopter in Jurassic World. But they were just kind of flying around it. This thing is just tearing this this plane apart. I mean, it's it's absolutely insane. It's going to be, yeah, as you said, bombastic, full of pizzazz. Um, 
I mean, but once again, we've got an example here of a pterosaur attacking something that is way bigger than it. Because even though it's sized up, that blade is also huge and noisy. And uh, I, that said, I have seen like clips and stuff of, of 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 eagles being quite territorial to people in gliders, which are bigger than them. Mm-hmm. So, but perhaps that's what we're seeing here. We, we we haven't seen the film when we're recording, so it might be ter- a territorial kind of thing. It's 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 annoyed that this this other flying creatures in its territory, which. Which I mean, a, a, a lot of planes get downed by, you know, geese and other flying yeah. animals. So it's uh, birds and planes are natural enemies. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, like it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not out of the question that a, that a large pterosaur would potentially attack something that's in its kind of territory. Right. So, yeah, that, yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, in terms of its head, it's got a really cool crest. It's really different from the crest on the Pteranodon, though, because the Pteranodon has the crest coming out the back of its head. This one's kind of sitting on top of the beak, isn't it? Yeah, so it's uh, sort of sitting usually around the, in front of the orbit area, but um, from uh, things like Quetzalcoatlus and Azarkids, the cranial preservation is not the best. So for Quetzalcoatlus, we have Foscules, which are recently re- re- rediscribed and reassessed by Andrews in a like very, very, very big paper, which I haven't finished reading yet because it's just out of comparative analysis of small, <laughs> tiny bones of Azarkids. And not all of scientists agree with them as, as they do with Thursday as it is. Uh, so uh, it is a very different animal from uh, Pterodon, but it's sort of the same with Pterodactyloids, quite derived Pterodactyloids, they're both toothless. Uh, so they share more similarities than differences. Uh, pterodons are the biggest, well-preserved uh, large pterosaurs, and after the pterodons, anything bigger just doesn't get as well-preserved, uh, just because it's usually more tertiary inclined, which is interesting, because you can imagine those kinds of animals being good at a long-term migration of the seas, but they stay usually in more tertiary environments, and they have very, very robust uh, arms and wing just to sort of support this uh, foraging uh, environment. And uh, it's, it's suggested they were mainly tertial foragers for its main feeding strategy. They were sort of more like halibut storks, uh, stalking the prey on the legs rather than scooping things as they were flying, or again, having pelican-like yeah. ability to scoop water, because again, that will be too heavy for this enormous animal. They have to be very light. Mm. So they mainly the main theory stands that were more tertial animals. So, so we're not flying and catching things from the sky, more just walking and using their big size for advantage of just scooping smaller things. That's that's kind of what we see as well in that in the Dominion prologue. Um is is there's a there's a, it's actually a group of them kind of walking through this kind of waterway and scavenging uh some some dead dinosaurs here. So that's yeah, so that's really cool. That 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 that's the scene that's actually set in the Cretaceous. So it's it's showing kind of what we do do know about how they would have lived so that's 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 really cool and, and um yeah i think i think yeah as you said overall this is looking this is looking really good um what's something really interesting i've seen pointed out um and it's something that i wouldn't have noticed but that they've actually sized up its wings a little bit um mm-hmm. uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that and yeah so we know that uh quetzalcoatl zarkid had very very tiny wings at least relative to other things <laughs> they're quite narrow but i guess that would make them look more alien yeah. which is exciting because that's how they looked 
But I guess people want to see them as flying creatures and seeing something flying with very narrow, small wings relative to their body size, which does not look very welcoming, unconvenient for people because like there's no analog for it. And when we don't see analogs within our heads, we get angry and we can't don't want to accept that proof. That's why like when we started reconstructing dinosaurs, we were being inspired by elephants and rhinos because that's the only uh, things that big animal, mega fauna. That's the only thing we know, and we go to the things we know. So I guess that was the case of just making them more accessible and again slightly more bird like and um, more realistic to people that only have reference things that we already see. Uh, and that might include just making them slightly more to proportion rather than how they would be in real life, which is very unlike anything that we are currently living and very, very weird with enormous heads on very, very long necks and tiny wings and a small <laughs> body. Like that, that, that's, that's too weird looking. You can <laughs> I give them a lot of creative freedom because the, the material we have of Azark is it's really, really scrappy and it's a combination of different species sort of going together in thing called ancestral stage reconstruction. So do you have a lot of leeway? Although a lot of paleontologists already have more or less combined idea of how Azarkis might have looked like, and there's a lot of black spaces which I guess they're sort of exploiting in that film. Right. So like uh yeah, it's it's I uh, yeah, the the, the the idea that such a weird creature actually looked even weirder in real life it's just like it's almost like it's too it's almost like silent hill or something like a like a horror kind of franchise if it, if it did yeah. have like the correct proportions it, it would be too strange for like people to kind of accept which yeah I, just in the contemporary animal uncanny value yes <laughs> yeah yeah like as you said like a like an alien yeah now this is an interesting one because obviously we've 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 not seen the film um so we don't really know much more about what it's going to be getting up to in the film. These might be the only scenes that's in. It might be in more. Um, but I'm going to kind of go out and, and kind of ask if you could see uh, a, a Quetzalcoatlus or an, uh, another Azarkhead in uh, in Dominion or another film, what would you like to see it doing in a scene? What would be your ideal scene? What do you want to see one be, be getting up to? <laughs> to be honest, I would love them to cover other animals that we know more of than yeah. Azarkhead. Because Azarkhead's... I know they're fascinating and they're cool, <laughs> but comparing to other pterosaurs, they're so poorly preserved. We have so many amazing <laughs> things from Brazil and China, and we can just cover weird-looking pterosaurs that yeah. are not as arcade. They're becoming the new pterodon. <laughs> I know they're cool. I understand that they're weird and alien, but we have so many better preserved things. <laughs> we just look, look better because everybody has kind of seen as darker fossils. Like, it's a bunch of scrap that doesn't look cool <laughs> on display. Like, yeah, I can show you a big humor. It's like a Delta War, this big Delta pectoral crest, but that's not interesting. <laughs> I guess then so- a better question would be, what would you like to see? And I, and I, I imagine you're probably quite biased towards Yerk, but... Uh... I mean, I would love to see Yarek because, oh, it's just around Paracos because we have so, it's like one of the better preserved thyrsos that we have out there with complete uh, soft tissue preservation and amazing tail veins and very weird uh, school shape. So it will be interesting to see on the media. Also, it's quite dragon-like because he has long tail, big thing with a lot of fangs. Like, you could go so creative with it. But I think if I could pick up Thorsar to feature in the Jurassic Park films, it will be one of the T. Pajarids or... Pelsonidis, yeah. or the, the big Brazilian terms of amazing head crests, uh, which uh, maybe were frugivorous, so they ate fruits, so for what, non carnivorous things. <laughs> uh, so I would love to see something like that. And it allows you to be so creative with uh, crests, which are most likely used for uh, some kind of social uh, communication 
between angles. So yeah, go for the pajamas or whatever everything falls within that plate. Uh, and also, I mean, we preserve fossils require uh, would benefit from that tension than as darkest, which are scrappy. <laughs> They're so so scrappy. I just I, I just going through a bias. I just don't like working with scrappy fossil record. It gets very interpretative and very hard and sparks arguments. That's so because everybody can read anything from one fully preserved bone. That's a really good point. Like yeah. In no matter what kind of line of work you're in, you kind of want a full picture to work with. <laughs> so, so, Which you'll never get with. Yeah. Like <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that, that's a great, great suggestion with the tapiara and like um, also like Ramphorhynchus. And this is this is why I do really like what they've been doing with the the toys is that they have the they have the, the Jurassic World toys of of these these more I, I guess you'd say ob- obscure pterosaur species and like it's cool. So like kids can play with the they're they're they and have it attack Owen or, or do whatever they want with it and they can make those moments themselves, mm-hmm. which is really cool. <laughs> uh, um, well, actually, so we're, we're kind of comes to the end here, and what we do on this show as well is we give each species a Dino DNA rating. So the, the kind of background behind this is that, um, as explained in the first film, uh, not all the dinosaurs' uh, genetic code is complete, and they fill in the gaps with other random things like frog DNA. So um, at the end of, 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 of these episodes, we like to look at the, the species and go, well, what percentage of its genome was complete? Uh, <laughs> so it'd be kind of cool to go back through these and give them all a, a dino DNA rating out of 100. So let's kick it off with Tyranodon, which is an interesting one, because obviously there's there's three different types of Tyranodon here, three variants. But ulti- ultimately, you know, they're all, they're all scaly. They've all got big, strong legs. Uh, they all grab people and perch on branches. They're they're all quite <laughs> quite similar in, in the way that that they diverge from the real world animal. So um, I don't know. I I think in my opinion, I'd probably give it a rating around about seventy percent. Like you can tell that it's a pteranodon. It's got it's got the crest. It's got the body shape. But there's quite a bit of it that feels like it's come from <laughs> from in this made up sides kind of world from other other animals. So what would you give? Maybe Osprey. They made the mistake of just like it's a flying animal. We have to yeah. Just put some bats on ospreys. They'll fill the gaps. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think I like movie, but I I like how they are utilized in. Films, especially yeah. in uh, the Lost World, because the effect of it is screeching. It's so convincing. Yeah. It, looks, it doesn't look like CGI. I have no idea how they did it. It's it so looks nice. so good. Yeah, that really holds up. That shot of it on the branch really, really holds up. And the way it's lit with the sun behind it, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the thing is, all of these all of these animals are in fantastic scenes and are used really well. And look, they look, the thing is, they, they, they the way they're animated and brought to life makes them feel convincing for sure. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, that's Tyrannodon. <laughs> it might be a completely accurate dinosaur, but if it's uh, just sort of poorly rendered and uh, not very well lit and uh, not uh, well modeled, it's just going to look ugly. But those Tyrannodons, they're so, they might be inaccurate, but they're so nicely modeled. They, they look are. very lifelike. And I also like the Jurassic Park 3 action sequence. I just think it's a very oh, it's nice horror sequence with them coming out of the fog, like despite them being toothy. As an action sequence and a set piece, that's a very yeah. good set piece. So <laughs> I am willing to just sort of uh, ignore in, uh, discrepancies as long as the scene in question is cool and it makes you interested in the species in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Because also that's the thing with 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 a pterosaur like Tyrannodon is it, it because it does look so unlike anything today. 
it really does lend itself well to those horror elements, but also those those kind of more wondrous moments because it is like a big a big flying bird in these films. So when they do have those moments, like in Jurassic Park three, they're flying into the sunset. It is beautiful, and yeah, there was something just slightly missing from the Jurassic World appearance. They were just a they were they were very <laughs> noisy, and it was it was a it was obviously an epic scene with with um you know all sorts of chaos going on. But yeah, quite a different vibe. Let's let's have a look at Dimorphodon. If you were to give this <laughs> a, a, a Dino DNA rating, what what percentage do you think this this is of actual Dimorphodon DNA? I think that's a hybrid. Like, that's I a hybrid. <laughs> I think it's just some random pterosaur that's mixed with a raptor or Rex, so, <laughs> you know, in its DNA because it doesn't look like that new impression. Yeah. Apart from it has a tail and can fly, <laughs> and maybe has picked up virus, but they can also come from other <laughs> theropods. So yeah, fifty percent. Yeah. And so. <laughs> yeah, I think I agree. I think split down the middle 50 percent. this this thing is uh it's it's got the body of a pterosaur it's got the tail of the dimorphodon but yeah something's something's happening with that head they definitely inserted they definitely filled a few gaps there they've cut a few corners uh it's like they they got a they got a message from the top like come on we need a new pterosaur and they're like we only really have uh pteranodon right now so let's just kind of make something <laughs> so yeah uh <laughs> Sorry, Dimorphodon, but um, one of my and favorite it's, pterosaurs in real life. He's the clay that I'm studying as well, so I'm so disappointed. Yeah. He could move my research more accessible, but no. <laughs> <laughs> Something is like when you have a bad representation of animal in film, it's just it's going to go by the wayside. Everyone's going to be focusing on the interesting things that play this uh, pivotal part. So when you go into museum outreach or something, kids start saying things like, "Oh, I, my favorite dinosaur is Adamus, uh, the Adamus Rex." So yes. you know the, the hybrid ones like that's that's a real dinosaur. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's, and then it's sort of things like that for just don't become interesting because they don't have cool set pieces. Yeah. They don't have. They don't look nice. They're not presentable. They look very nice as toys. So uh, they sort of disappear from the Public conscious as other animals that are more headline, like Spinosaurus, yeah, for example, that's a good which is point. now, you know, big animal thanks to its very primitive and nice appearance in Jurassic Park 3. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a really interesting point you just brought up about the um the Indominus. I've I had that a few times when in my time as an educator at a museum. And it was quite a nice opportunity to kind of talk about the the dinosaurs that made up the Indominus Rex and go, well that one's not real, but these ones are. <laughs> um and then and then yeah, so Quetzalcoatlus, I'm thinking I'm leaning towards quite a high rating for this. I'm feeling like eighty to ninety percent. This feels this feels like they, they had a good idea of what they were working with here. There's a, a few things. I mean, obviously they've injected it with some sort of growth serum because it is huge. I mean, it could be, they could have been injected because we've seen them in Cretaceous oh, before. Yes, by interference. So You're absolutely it's, right. The DNA doesn't match at all. It should be hundred percent. It isn't. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah, they've oh, got. That's the same case because we've seen them in yeah, Cretaceous. That's totally changed the game. Yeah. So, so yeah, these are these are hundred percent according to what we see in the Jurassic version of Cretaceous. Um, but so, so that kind of suggests that this probably isn't a, a Quetzalcoatlus. This is an undiscovered giant Azarkid, uh, essentially, because <laughs> it is huge. But yeah, o- overall, to, it's the, 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 the fossil record is wrong. We just see yeah. the wrong animal. It's not really Quetzalcoatlus. It's 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 a big cousin. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So, yeah, that makes the third one thing very disappointing because that means. They didn't care at all about making slightly more accurate when they yeah. did the Cretaceous thing. Yeah, yeah. It, I guess it was. Yeah, it was kind of a decision was made to have consistency with the designs 
Although they did give the T-Rex the kind of covering of, of downy kind of feathers, so that was interesting. Um, and also kind of appreciate I I appreciated that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, but yeah, overall a good a good design on the quest. It's just huge. Uh, so yeah, I'd probably I'd probably end up giving it a ninety compared to the real life one. Um, but yeah. Um, so that's pretty much it. We've we've come to the end of this episode on pterosaurs. Um, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Natalia. How's it been? Yeah, it was great. <laughs> I, I have to disclose, I am not uh, catching up with all of Jurassic Park things. So, Camp Cretaceous, other films, I'm still behind of them. Yeah, I'm busy with looking at actual animals to be looking at fictional ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. Like, yeah, you're 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 out there doing doing the fantastic work of. On these real, real world animals, which is so exciting, and and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to to come on here and, and talk about these pterosaurs. And of course, like uh, everyone should be following you where they can to keep up to date on your research. Do you want to shout out um, where people can follow you on on social media and such? I am too active on Twitter, sadly. So <laughs> <laughs> my tagline is uh, Ry Critic, so it's W R Y Critic. And it's that Pterosaur Artist on Instagram, which I'm not too uh, frequenting on, but you can see some of my art there. Because, yeah, I'm also doing paleo art in addition to being a oh, palm floater, so you can follow me for cool Pterosaur constructions, uh, which might or might not be as accurate as the ones you see in dress <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, I think with that, we're going to wrap up today. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Um, as always, it'd be great to hear what you think. Uh, please do leave comments on uh, the Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook posts when this episode comes out. What you think, and also uh, what you want to see covered in the next episode of Dino DNA. But until then, um, I'll see you next time. Bye bye. Thank you so, so much for listening to the 335th episode of the Jurassic Park podcast. Of course, a huge thank you goes out to Connor for handling the segment duties here today. And as always, Dino DNA is just such a wonderful look at the world of dinosaurs here on the podcast. And of course, today, such a wonderful look at flying reptiles. So that was pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, And of course, this one could not be done without Natalia Yagiaska. Uh, So please give a huge round of applause for Natalia and be sure to find all of Natalia's links in our show notes. Now, in two weeks' time on September 12th, you will be able to hear The Jurassic Wire with Aaron Beyer, so stay tuned for that episode coming up right around the corner. I'm very, very excited to uh, get down to it again with Aaron and and find out, uh, you know, did he watch the extended cut? I, I don't know. Did he like it more? I, we'll find out. I hope he. I hope he watches it. Uh, but, but I'm sure there will be a ton of other things to discuss in the Jurassic Wire. So stay tuned for the next episode in a few weeks. But of course, join us over on YouTube for our live streams for all of the up-to-date information and news regarding the Jurassic franchise. But thanks again for joining us here this week. Lots of love to everybody out there. Stay safe. Be kind to each and every person that you come into contact with. Let's continue to fight for representation, change, and equality within the franchise, but more importantly, in the real world. And let's make this world a better place. I'm going to go ahead and hand things off to myself for the outro. Thanks, everybody. 
Saddle up. Let's get this movable feast underway. Be sure to give us a follow over on Twitter at Jurassic Park Pod and myself at Brad Jost. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Jurassic Park Podcast. Don't forget to join the Jurassic Park Podcast group on Facebook. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, our website, or wherever else podcasts are found. So be sure to follow along. Also, don't miss our live streams, toy hunts, reviews, in-depth bonus content, gameplay, event and theme park coverage, and much more on our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We will read your reviews at the end of most episodes, so be sure to spare no expense. Find us on the web at JurassicParkPodcast.com, where you'll find today's episode's show notes, articles, contributor bios, and so much more. If you want to get a hold of us, you can fill out the contact form on our website or send emails to JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. We're always looking for new segments, contributors, mailbag submissions, or anybody who just wants to say hello. Feel free to call our voicemail line at any time to leave us a message. That number is 732-825-7763. Make sure to be kind to everybody and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Five minutes. Drop what you're doing and leave now.